0: All right, once again, good morning to you all. Today our, uh, our sermon text is going to be uh, all of Genesis chapter 15 as we uh, continue our study of the book of Genesis here. So when you find Genesis chapter 15, would you please stand for reading God's word? All right, Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, in the land that is not theirs, And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites.
1: Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, again we come before your throne of grace this morning. Looking to you and our weakness, Lord, seeking your help, your aid, indeed your enabling power. This text that we Uh, come to this morning is so critical for the rest of the Bible message. And then, in addition to that, it has implications that directly affect us in our daily walk with you, our living in this world, and all these things, Lord, in grasping what You are saying here, we we need Your help. So I pray, Lord, that You enable me to speak with accuracy, with clarity, and enable all of us to receive Your truth. And may it have its Sanctifying work done in us, Lord, we pray, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And again, we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen, amen. You can be seated well um There is a lot here, and I don't think I overstated it to say that this is foundational for um, understanding the rest of the redemptive message within the Bible, uh, or to be just a little more uh, specific, when we think in terms of the New Testament message that we are saved by grace through faith. The text that we're looking at today... Um, is um, is fundamental to that, that message. In fact, Paul goes back to it in Romans 4 and then again in Galatians 3, appealing to it as as um, the foundation for the, the truth that he's teaching. So I'm going to try to highlight some of those things. And as I said, just... because um, uh, I don't know how much time we'll have to, to go to those passages, but we want to consider those things for sure. And, and also to just implications for our own lives pulled from the narrative of Abraham here. So, so uh, I guess I'm saying that so that you understand that my, my purpose is not um, not really to give a message this morning on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, although that is certainly uh, a part of uh, what's happening here, and I, and I w- want to be uh, talking about that some. But, um, but we're kind of dealing with the book of Genesis as we move through it, trying to understand um, what the author intended when it was written, what the readers that were contemporary to Moses would have taken from it, and then also um, what we are to take from it as New Testament Christians. So, uh, Lord willing, we'll be trying to do all of those things as we continue to, to move through. So, as part of that, I had a couple of questions last week, um, that, I, and I just want to come back to this one Thing here, and it'll help set us up anyway as far as context. But last week we talked about Melchizedek, which is another—he's uh, he's kind of a, a vague figure in the in the Old Testament story, but he plays a crucial role uh, as far as pointing toward the ministry of Jesus. And we we could probably spend. Oh I don't know several sermons <laughs> talking about Melchizedek, so it's kind of hard to just kind of gloss over that um, but we would have to go spend some time in the book of hebrews in in five six, seven, and eight uh, uh, or seven mainly in the book of hebrews so so I just what I tried to do last week was just let you know that he was that he is he does represent here a type of Christ, but I did want to come back to something that was mentioned. And uh, as I said, it'll help us with context anyway. Um, When Abraham defeats the uh, four kings with with his alliance, defeats the four kings um, mentioned uh, in chapter 14, that battle is mentioned in chapter 14, he comes back from from that victory. He is greeted by two kings, um, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Sol- Salem, or what we would know as Jerusalem, uh, was actually a city before the Jews had it and uh, a stronghold. Um, and this, again, is one of those things I didn't have much, I didn't devote much time to last week, but the, the, the contrast between these two kings could, not, could hardly be much greater. Um, here is king of Sodom. Barah, um and Sodom is a wicked place and uh, and we're reminded of that in the passage. Uh, and what he's looking to do is kind of get his stuff back that abram that abram was was able to uh, take back from the from the aggressors and uh, and then kind of pay Abram off. You know just give me the people back you or is actually you take the stuff and just give me the people back and uh, Abram refused to do that lest he would say, Lest the king of Sodom would say that he made Abram rich. Um, message there, by the way, and, you know, uh, not looking to the riches of the world, but trusting in the blessing of God. So there is Bera, king of Sodom. And then the other king is Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's the word, Salem, there's the word, uh, we, get the, we get the word, uh, the Hebrew word shalom comes from, means peace or, or well being. It's kind of a uh, uh, probably a stronger term than we might think of when we use a, the, the word peace because it just encompasses more. So I, I like to, uh, you, as many people do, I like to use the, the phrase well-being. It's, a, it's a, a wholeness. And that's where that term comes from. So his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And then we're also told he is king of peace or Salame. Salam. So he's, while while Barah is king of Sodom, this wicked city, Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. And, if that weren't enough, priest of God Most High. So this one man is both king and priest. King of righteousness, king of peace, and at the same time, priest of God Most High. He's not a pagan, an idolater. He's a worshiper of the one true God, and when he greets Abram, we're told in verse eighteen, chapter fourteen, verse eighteen, that he brought out bread and wine. Now, now let me just say this: I'm not going to spend much more time on this, but um, what he does is two things essentially: he blesses Abram and he blesses God. <laughs> Isn't that good? Uh, and and when you bless bless God, well, yes, but when you, you know the term. Bless, uh, and, and I was actually uh, looking at the the Greek text here, which is the, the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew, um, where they use the common word for blessed, which means to speak well of. So, when you think of blessing God, you can think in terms of that's a way of talking about praise, worship, speak well of Him, like Jude did in Jude 24 and 25 that we read earlier. And so, Melchizedek blesses Abram and he blesses God. That's in verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And notice his high view of God as, as a creator or possessor of all things, owner of all things, heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. so, he credits God for the victory that Abram... Just one so in the process of doing that or just prior to his blessing he brings out bread and wine and I was asked if that was significant because um, I had mentioned that he's presented here as a as a type or a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ and I do think it's significant maybe more than we uh, realize or, or have uh, stated for us here, but but I do think it's significant because this would have been a common way, I think, of, of establishing a, a, a special relationship. In other words, I, what I don't think it was was, um, you know, Abram, Abram had a hard day in the battle, bring out the refreshments, you know, and uh, we'll, we'll sit around and have uh, uh, milk and cookies or, in this case, bread and wine or Kool-Aid or something like that. N- no, what I think is happening here is as priest of God Most High, it, it's, a, it's a ceremonial... Um, meal similar to um, what the Lord did in the, uh, in the Lord's Supper, what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I think it's probably not a stretch to say that it, that it foreshadows that, okay? Because Melchizedek definitely foreshadows Christ. And it's Christ who is our King of Righteousness, Christ who is our King of Peace, Christ who is our um, High Priest... Priest of the Most High God, or God Most High, and we um, display, put on display, or, or uh, symbolically display our covenant with Christ through partaking of the bread and the wine. The bread representing His body broken for us, that is sacrificed for us on the cross, and the blood representing Uh, His blood that was shed for us, right? For the forgiveness of sins. So yes, I think all of of what's taking place here has significance in that it is foreshadowing the real king of peace, the real king of righteousness, the real priest, high priest of God Most High. And so you have that all embodied in this um, man Melchizedek who we know so little about. Um, and yet he comes out and blesses Abraham, and he, and he is demonstrated to be superior to, to Abraham uh, because Abraham actually tithes to him. So he, he, they have the, uh, what, I, what I think is probably representing a covenant meal, bread and wine, and then he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham tithes to him a tenth of the spoil. So, when you get to chapter 15, and you see the, that phrase, after these things, that's these things, okay? That's what just happened. Now, interestingly, a couple things here. Um, and I, uh, I did put, as a, you notice, as a, as a title in the bulletin, right with God, because, um, again, a key verse here. Is going to be verse six. He believed the Lord. That is Abraham or Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So, um, right with God, and a subtitle of taking God should be at His word, taking God at His word. So, what's what's at play here again? And we we've, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit. But um, the the Bible is emphasizing it and reemphasizing it as it will continue to do, not only in Genesis, but all the way through. But what's at work here is um, the concept that's at work here is trusting God. Trusting God. Now, that really is a relevant um, concept for us because in our culture everything is shouting to us that the biblical message, gospel of Jesus Christ, biblical message as a whole, the historical um, facts represented in the Bible are not trustworthy and that the God of the Bible is not trustworthy. And so I think it, it, there that question, let's just put, again put it in question form. Is God trustworthy? That question is a question that should be a front burner issue in the life of every person. And Christians ought to be asking it and re-asking it again and again and again, not, not out of doubt, but um, for the sake of reassurance. Because the answer comes back, right? Yes, 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 he is. And we're seeing that, um, again, reemphasized over and over in the life of Abram. And it's to, uh, to benefit us, or as I mentioned a moment ago, it's to benefit Moses' contemporary readers as they are preparing to enter the promised land. And it's to benefit us as we are preparing to enter the promised land. Not a geographic spot in the Middle East, but eternity. So, here's just kind of a summation sentence here um, that has to do with trusting God. When Abram could not see how God's promise would be fulfilled, he nevertheless trusted Him. And that's one of the points that I want to make. Um... We are blind in, in, in large part to the future. And the only reason I say in large part is because God has revealed some things to us that, that, that again, if we trust Him and if we understand that we can trust His Word, then there, there are certain things that we can say we know about the future. But other than that, it's a mystery to us. We're, we're blind to it. I, mean, I cannot tell you what's going to happen five seconds from now, much less a few thousand years from now if the Lord tarries that long. We do not know the future, but the God that we serve does. Now, what we would like, or at least think we would like, is if He would give us some more detail. <laughs> especially, especially when it comes to the specifics of our own lives, right? So, if, if you and I, are, if, if we were living in Ur the Chaldees and God called us out, we might say, okay, Lord, um, just exactly where is it that we're going? But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abram packed up and left, not even knowing where he was going. So he's leaving everything familiar to him and <laughs> going to the unfamiliar. And, of course, what we've been seeing in the last few chapters is him moving about actually in this land that God has promised him, but, but he's living there as a stranger because it is still occupied by the Canaanites. And uh, basically what he has, what Abram has, is the stuff that he's carrying with him as he moves around um, living the life of a nomad or Bedouin, and so he doesn't—he do, he doesn't know initially when he sets out. He doesn't know where he's going. Now, he, geographically, he's in the area, he's in the land, but it's not yet been handed to him. In fact, it won't be uh, in his lifetime. It won't be delivered to. It'll be delivered to his descendants, but not to him. So he, the land's not been given to him. And what's more at issue here in our uh, current text is the descendants. Where are they? <laughs> the, the land. There are t- two things as, as part of the, God's promises here. Um, the seed are descendants. Some translations will say descendants. Something like that. Um, offspring. The ESV uses the word offspring. Abram's offspring. And then the second part of God's promises has to do with the land. those two things go together, the land is going to be given to the seed, the offspring. Well, Abram's in the land, but he doesn't possess it. And he has no offspring. What I'm saying is this. He has the promises of God, but he cannot see how the promises will come to pass. It it just doesn't look like things are moving in that direction. And, you know, some Christians may, especially in in America, um, we we may look at American culture and say, you know, this doesn't look like it's going the right way. It doesn't look like things are moving in the right direction. And yet we know... That the gospel is going to go out to all nations, that there are going to be people saved from all peoples, tribes, tongues. But you look, you look, at least you watch the news, and you look not only in America, but around the world, and you, you have large chunks of the world secularized and becoming more and more secularized. And then other large chunks of the world serving false gods and involved in false religions. And you might think, just how is it that these promises are going to come about? How is it that your kingdom is going to come, Lord, and that your kingdom is going to be filled up with people? Now, now maybe that's a little bit of analogy to what Abram might be thinking. But what Abram was determined to do was hold on to God's promises because he knew that God was trustworthy. So it's it's not always important. In fact, probably more times than not by far. It's not important that we understand how God's plan is going to come together. What's important is not that we know that. What's important is that we know God. What's important is that we know His Word, that we hear Him speak. Listen, God is speaking. God is speaking. Are you listening? Listening takes, takes reading. It takes reading the Bible because this is where He's speaking. And He's still speaking today. Now, here's one of the interesting things here in, in verse 1. After, after these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram, that is so important. I mean, this is how God communicates through His Word. This is how God expresses Himself. That's not foreign to us, is it? I mean, we can understand that's how we express ourselves um, for the most part, through Word. And that's because we're created in the image of God. We... we, we um, by God's design, we, we have language and that's that's how we communicate. So God expresses Himself. That's why you see in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. But this is the first time in the Bible that we see this little phrase, the Word of the Lord. And I think that's significant because it's it's... If you continue reading the Bible, it's not going to be a foreign phrase at all. (laughs) You're going to see it over and over and over again because, again, this is how God expresses Himself. I know um, we think we can come up with better ways. God has chosen to make Himself known through His Word. And not only that, but it says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram. I love that (laughs) because, and Lord willing, I'll come back to this in a minute, but this is the background, this is the backdrop, I think, for John 1. John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, John does something rather strange in... in uh, hopefully I won't fall here right in front of everybody. But John does something rather strange in, in his gospel. He uses this term logos, and even today, um, you know, there's... there's, um, Well, I mean, we, we, we wrestle with trying to understand it because the Greek word logos was... An um, extremely common word. It's not that it was something unusual, but kind of in the way that John's using it, it sounds like Greek philosophy because that concept was—it was, it was a, philo- a very common philosophical term to, rep- to represent the, the divine or supreme principle that governs all things. And you get to John one one. And John says, in the beginning was the word, and that word word is that word Lagos. In the beginning was the Lagos. And the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. And so, you know, some some who some who recognize that may be scratching their head and thinking, What is John what is John doing here? Picking up on this term of philosophy, I mean, in other words, is, is he going is, is to talk to us about some pagan god, pagan idea of God, the logos, the divine principle, impersonal, some impersonal creative force or whatever it is out there? Why does John use that term? Well, I do think that's part of it, not that he's going to talk about a pagan god, but I, but I think he's picking up, part of what he's doing there is picking up on the, the concept behind the, the philosophical concept behind Logos as divine principle. And he's saying, you know what? Yeah, and to the Greeks, I think he's, this is one of those, uh, not to sound violent here, but killing two birds with one stone, okay? <laughs> Just to use a little idiom, he's killing two birds with one stone. So, so to the Greeks... As soon as they see that word logos, that's what they're thinking. Divine principle. This impersonal force that governs the universe that we really don't know much about and we really don't know how to describe it. We just call it the logos. Except John blows their mind a little further down when he says, The logos, who was with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. And then He just blows that whole idea of a non-personal God and says, let me tell you. I think think that's part of what He's doing. He's saying, let me tell you about the Logos. Let Let me tell you who the Logos is. It's not just a what, it's a who. And He became flesh, and we beheld His glory. And His name is... Jesus and he's the Lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world, the eternal Son of God, who was with God in the beginning and was God himself. but there's something else I think John is doing there, and a lot of times when you when you're reading the New Testament, you can tell a lot of times that um, it's written with Jews in mind they they've largely i mean they they that's understandable. I mean, they were Jews, right, for the most part? And they're writing to Jews. The early church was mostly made up of Jews. And so they've got this whole Old Testament background. And so they speak to them that way, some more than others. John's gospel is probably a little more geared for Gentiles where um, Matthew, you can tell he's really... Targeting Jews, he, he, he keeps making statements and he keeps backing them up with Old Testament scripture, which you know the, most of the world wouldn't have cared about, but Jews would have cared about that. You know, Matthew just repeatedly says something like, you know, this happened so so that uh, this would be fulfilled, or to fulfill the words of the prophet, you know, so and so. And he's making his case to the Jews. Anyway, I think that's a little bit of what John's doing in John one as well when he uses the term logos, because it would have been used here in the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Word of God came to Abram. The logos came to Abram. So what I'm saying is this. While John uses the term logos, in the Greek mind, they would have been thinking about this philosophical concept, you know, the divine principle. But in the mind of the Jews... their mind would have immediately gone to passages like this. In other words, they would have understood it as referring to an oracle of the one true living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of David, and the God of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's where their mind would have gone when they heard that term. Just because of passages like this. The Word of the Lord came to Abram. And as I said, through the rest of the Old Testament, you you see that repeatedly. Um, It's spoken of that way a lot. In the prophets, for example, the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah or something like that. Now, so John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all the Jews are tracking with him in that, right? And and like I say, passages like this would come to mind because they could think, Our father Abraham, the word of the Lord, God. In other words, it's a a manifestation of God. God came to Abraham. God spoke to Abram. And then the same way that, or at least with the same statement, that John blows the mind of the Greeks when he says, Yeah, that divine principle became flesh and dwelt among us. (laughs) He <laughs> blows the mind of the Jews by saying, yeah, the Word, of, the Word of the Lord, you know, the Word that was in the beginning with God and was God, the Word that came to Abraham and the Word that came to Jeremiah and the Word that came to Isaiah, that Word became flesh. He pitched His tent among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. And I think it's not um, saying too much to say that is what we have here. In fact, I think that's part of John's point. In the beginning, now he's going back to creation and prior. In other words, you can think of it this way. in In the beginning, the Word already was. That's what John is saying. In the beginning, the Word already was. And he was with God and he was God. So now, as a, as a New Testament Christian, when we're going back and reading Genesis, it kind of, kind of works the opposite. When we're going back and reading Genesis, our minds, when we see a phrase like this, the Word of the Lord, our minds ought to go to John 1. 1. And we can think something like, here is Jesus speaking to Abraham. And our mind ought to go to John 8 58, where the Jews said to Jesus, right to his face, You're not even 50 years old. You know Abraham? And he said, Let me tell you something. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, he knew Abraham. <laughs> he spoke to Abraham. <laughs> And Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. The word of the Lord came to Abram and said, Fear not. Isn't that interesting? Because he just won a great victory. And you've got to wonder, I mean, the, the Lord doesn't mince words. Why would the Lord say, Don't fear, Abram, unless he was fearing? Maybe he was just shook up. I think I would be if I just chased down four kings and fought with them and... Uh, you know i mean maybe he was just unsettled maybe he was fearing um some kind of of, of revenge you know that they would be able to strengthen and come back on him or maybe he's just thinking you know i've tried to do everything the lord has told me to do And even when we divided the land, I I let Lot pick, and and it was not—I didn't go towards Sodom. Lot went over towards Sodom, and I've just—I've just tried to be obedient and follow God, and I find myself in the middle of a battle, (laughs) fighting for my life. Uh, maybe, Maybe that's what he was unsettled about. I think I can identify with that. But listen, in that time of fear, God speaks. Kind of puts you in mind of the disciples in the boat, doesn't it? And the boat's just reeling and rocking and here comes Jesus walking along and I, you, you kind of expect Him to say, hey, I'm fixing to fix this and everything's going to be all right. But the first thing that he says is, fear not. Fear not. He does, he does that before he calms the storm. That is, he focuses on the, the inner storm before he focuses on the outer storm. And he does wind up taking care of the outer storm. And in some fashion, he, he, he always does that. Um, I mean, think about it. The worst they can do is kill us, right? And if they kill us, <laughs> we, we go to glory. So, storm's over. Fear not. Listen to what he says. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I am your shield. Now, just think about that a moment. The living God. Yeah, Abram, you went out there and you fought. You put your life on the line. You expended all of your strength. And you're exhausted. But you need to know something, Abram. I'm your shield. And when you're in the battle, I'm, I'm the one protecting you. Protector with a capital P. Shield with a capital S, right? It's not just I got your back. It's, I got your front and your sides. And he already told him this, didn't he? He said it back in chapter 12. I'm going to bless you And I'm going to make you great, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who esteem you lightly. Well, God hasn't changed his mind. (laughs) But Abram needs a reminder. So he says, I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Now, actually, that phrase can be translated two different ways. And if you're looking at a King James, it's going to say something like, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Making God the reward. I like that. And either way, whichever way is correct, that is still ultimately true. Christian, God is our shield, God protects us. And I know we think sometimes, it seems like a lot of stuff is getting through the shield. But that's just the thing. The stuff that gets through has to go through by permission. The shield is not faulty. God's not... He's never, it's not like He's on break and He missed out on something. Whatever reaches us Reaches us by His design. And we might be be tempted to think, well, you know, that doesn't sound like much protection. Well, because we're somewhat like Abram. You know, I mean, we've got the present battle in view. We've got the present circumstances in view. You know, here I am, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I can't even you know, settle down and make a home, where God's got the big picture in view. In fact, He's going to talk about that just a few verses down, where He says, oh yeah, you're going to have seed, you're going to have offspring, and they're going to, they're going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and then they're going to come back here. You see, God's got the, the whole picture in view. And what He's doing when Abram is in the midst of that battle... That's a small part of God's big plan, and God is working all of that out for Abram's good to fulfill His promise. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you great, and you're going to have more offspring than you can count, and you're going to inherit the land. Real quick, we're out of time, so let me, let me, let's move down to... Uh, um, Abram's concern. As I said, we, we don't often, we, we don't see how things are going to work out. Abram says, verse two, but Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, he's, he's got this promise in his mind of offspring. But he says, I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir now I think if he were angry or if he were accusing God I think God would would respond um, in righteous wrath uh, I'm, I'm just mentioning that because what I, I don't think this is evidence here of, of some kind of major doubt on Abram's part you know you promised me offspring you have not given me <laughs> offspring I, I I think it's an indication of lack of understanding I mean he's saying I I'm not seeing, Lord, how this is working. It's kind of like Mary when the angelic messenger announces to her that she's going to have a child. And she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So Abram's saying, how, how can this be, Lord? How's it going to work? And behold, the word of the Lord, there it is again, came to him, this man shall not be your heir. I always love it when the Lord just really, you know, emphasizes something. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. All you gotta do is go back to, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, 6 to 7, and you'll see that that's clear. Your very own seed shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look, look, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your seed be. I haven't changed my mind. I'm not going back on my promises. Listen, this is what I was referring to earlier. We don't need to know how God's going to work it out. We just need to know God. We just need to know His Word. That He's trustworthy. That He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That His Word does not return unto Him void, but it accomplishes what He sends it to do, Isaiah says. That's all we need to know. And you know what? I think that was enough for Abram. Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is, God counted his belief to him, counted Abram's belief to him as righteousness. So Abram believed. Now let me just put in my synonym there. And he trusted the Lord because that's what's happening here. And, And Christians, when we talk about faith, that's what we're talking about. Trusting God. And so God said, essentially, no, 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 no. Eleazar is not going to be your heir. My promise is good. It's going to be like I told you, a son... Your very own son shall be your heir. And so Abram believed, that is, he trusted the Lord. He trusted, listen, he trusted His Word. He trusted His Word. And the Lord counted, or literally it's reckoned, the Lord reckoned that, an accounting term, put it to His account the Lord reckoned that trust as righteousness. And it works the same for us. Romans 4, Galatians 3, Paul appeals to this very text to show the way that we are made right with God. That's the idea behind righteousness. The way that we are right with God is by trusting Him. To be a little more specific, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What He has done. His saving work. God sent His Son, right? For God so loved the world, He gave his only begotten son. Brothers and sisters, that is the fulfillment of this text. Verse 4 This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Well, Abraham had children, and of course Isaac is the child of the promise, but ultimately that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the son of Abraham, who is the heir to the promises of the covenant of Abraham. And Paul makes that clear again in Galatians 3, and even goes on to say that we are children of Abraham if we have faith, that is, if we trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by... And I know we hear this phrase a lot, but salvation is by grace. That is God's grace. It's a gift alone. Can't work for it. We'll see that more as we go through this text. And God cuts a covenant, a unilateral covenant with Abraham. Can't work for it. It's by grace alone through... Faith alone. That is through trusting God's word. God gave His word to Abram. He trusted God's word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, he was put in right standing with God. Brothers and sisters, it works the same with us. God gave His word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was. God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we are saved, that is, we are put in right relationship to God by trusting His Word. Jesus. Would you stand, please? David, you mind leading us in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed.